this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff, the podcast you would do if you had nothing better to do. That's right. And we're here huddled in our bunkers as democracy crashes Uh, and burns around us. Whatever. We just want to let our overseas listeners know that we're okay. Yeah, we're fine. So far. So far. So far. uh, How many more days? Five more days till the uh, inauguration? Yeah. So did you have any updates? It's possible I should have, but I don't have any. Okay. I I did have a a peeve I wanted to discuss. All right. But fortunately, probably for our listeners, I can't remember what it was. I was thinking about it in the car as I was driving, listening to another podcast, and it seemed like a really good one that would spur an interesting discussion. I kind of have one. What is it? That I think I mentioned to you, and you agreed with me. Okay. Of course. Yes. When there is a um, adaptation of a book. Oh yeah. I think there's one on for Rebecca. Is it on Netflix or? Yeah, one of those Netflix. Because ones. there's also one for Jamaica Inn. Yeah. I'm one of them. Yeah. Um, which I'm not going to watch. When people call. An adaptation that uses this, and I've mentioned this before, it's an adaptation that uses the same source material as another movie, and they say it's a remake of the movie. Yes, I hate that. It really bugs the shit out of me. Me too, because the one on Netflix is a movie of the book, Rebecca, Mm -hmm. not a remake of the 1930s movie, Rebecca. Did you watch it? No, I read it. Oh. I read a review of it in the LA Times, and I probably won't watch it. No, it doesn't sound like it, it's good. Because it sounds like some of the major characters just are flat and played differently. I, I prefer the book. I liked the movie. with The um, Alfred Hitchcock movie. Right. Yeah. But I really like the book. And also, too, it kind of on the same note, I hate it when, when somebody reviews a movie made from a book... And criticizes kind of the storyline that came from the book. I'm thinking yeah. particularly of when I think it was maybe um, PBS or somebody did a mini series on Bleak House, you know, the Dickens book mm-hmm. a few years ago, reading a review that complained about the depressing storyline and blah, 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 <laughs> and made it sound like it was the movie's fault. The review did not seem to recognize that it was a book, you know? I hate that. Yeah. Makes the reviewer sound like a real ignoramus, too. Yes, yes. But I also think that people sound like ignoramuses when they think, for instance, that the Rebecca on Netflix is a remake of the movie Rebecca and not an adaptation of the book Rebecca. Unless the person who made the movie said, oh, well, I didn't even base it on the book. I was just doing a remake of the movie. Okay, fine. But even then, I don't even think then, it is. That because would be weird. It would... sounds like, and I don't want to give any spoilers away, but in the book, the original Rebecca was was shot to death. Right. And the mo- Alfred Hitchcock movie, she wasn't. He pushed her or something and she fell and hit her head because I guess they didn't want to make him too... Bad. Bad. But... I think in this new one, it's the original, I think she's shy, from what I could understand from the review I heard. But so that review I heard means that it wasn't a remake of the movie, because if it was a remake of the movie, they would have had the same cause of death. And they didn't. So anyway. Well, and also... That's just my... Also, it wouldn't be a remake of the movie, because if you're remaking the movie, you're really limiting yourself 
you know, you, yes. there's a lot of source material. You, you're, and also, if it were, as you said, a remake of the movie, they'd make a big deal about how they're doing this Hitchcockian yeah. remake. You know, it just Which doesn't make what sense. would be the point? That, that's a good peeve, and it's one I share. So I oh, don't feel as bad. Of course, you and I share sh- so many peeves. Though. I know, I know. So I don't feel as bad about not remembering. You'll remember it. Yeah, I'll remember it. You know, it's something for everybody to look forward to <laughs> for next time. Maybe we should just launch right into your... Yes, because this was one of the ones that I thought would probably be not too long. In fact, when I first decided to do it, I thought it might have to be a main mini. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not. So it is a, a it's a main story, right? It's main. It has links to main, but... I, I have a reason for asking. Okay. Can I play the song? Um... I guess you could play it, although it's not really, but yeah, you can play it. Okay. The 16 counties in our state are Cumberland and Franklin. The Scatterpuss and Somerset are Brunswick and Muscogee. Saginaw and Kennebec, Lincoln, Austin, and Cobb. Walla, Washington, and York, Oxford, and I apologize to our listeners. If we had like at our song. office Zoom holiday celebration. Mm-hmm. We had a Jeopardy <laughs> game, a group Jeopardy. That I sounds like a lot of fun. It was not. You um, said it was fun. I saw you say it on Facebook or somewhere. Or I know you saw somebody I work with say it on Facebook oh. that I either shared or liked. Okay. It probably Anyways. on Twitter. It was probably Renee on Twitter, my friend Renee. But because I did not mention our office work party on social media. But I thought you were drinking some kind of a alcohol and so we it was... were providing oh, okay. the making. It must have been your co worker. For you know, a... some of them might listen to us. No, so none of them listen to us. Don't I worry think about it. Some do. We were anyway. provided the makings for a cocktail. Which was delicious. And Andrea, if you're listening, thank you. And I, the whole reason I bring it, the whole thing oh, up the Jeopardy, is, sorry. is they played that song <laughs> and stopped it before it ended and then said what three counties weren't mentioned. Did you win? No. Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, no, the reason our team didn't win, we were way ahead, is nobody told me that the final Jeopardy wasn't going to be like the final Jeopardy and Jeopardy. Everybody else seemed to get it, except for me, so mm-hmm. that, I can't remember how they did it, but, it, like, we were ahead, and so I told the member of our team who was doing the answer to only bet a certain, a certain amount, and we couldn't lose, uh. but... It didn't work that way. Hmm. So, I don't know. Uh, I've gone on too long. It sounds like there's some trauma attached to that memory. So, maybe Well, the only we trauma is on. that, you know, everybody thinks I'm a know-it-all. And um, it was oh, my fault. Oh, I'm team sure lost. they don't. <laughs> <laughs> so was, okay. So why don't we do your story now? Okay. In the summer of 2019, when I first saw the headlines about a Massachusetts man arrested in Maine for rapes committed years ago in his home state, I thought, didn't this already happen? Mm -hmm. I thought this was news a few years ago. 
The story of a man who had been a serial rapist back in his home state and then spent years hiding in Maine just seems so familiar. But wait, this guy was arrested in Seal Cove, which is down East Maine, and wasn't the guy I'm thinking of arrested in Gorham? After a quick internet search, I realized my memory for true crime was still working. Mm. There were two different men with very similar stories. This newest story was Ivan Keith, who had been living as Chris Keith in Seal Cove on the western side of Mount Desert Island. The other guy I was thinking of was Gary Irving, who was arrested in 2013 and had been living in Maine for at least 30 years in Gorham, a town about 12 miles northwest of Portland. Gary Allen Irving and Ivan Keith were about the same age. Gary Irving is about 60 or 61 now, and Ivan Keith is 62 or 63. Gary Irving grew up and attacked his victims in the South Shore area, Cohasset, Randolph, Weymouth, about 20 miles southeast along the shore from Boston. Ivan committed his crimes in the Easton and Braintree area, about 28 miles south of Boston. There were other similarities as well, as we'll find out once we delve into the crimes a bit Mm. more. But Hannah noticed one other similarity, that both men's names were two first names, like their oh. surname was also a first name. That's good for you sharing the story of Gary Rape. I know with your with your nine year old daughter reveals she's almost ten. That's true, and she knows what that is. Yeah, I know. You know what? You can't teach him too soon. That's right. She told me she hates men, anyways. Good for her. And I didn't teach her that. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> I don't think <laughs> I learned it from watching you. I was just thinking that. Remember that. Remember that ad? I learned it from watching yes. you. <laughs> I bet a lot of people our age remember that. Oh, why don't you tell them what the kid learned? Oh, the father finds some pot, uh, some bag of pot or something, and he says to the kid, where did you learn about this? And the kid's like, from you. I learned it from watching you. And, and the, the father, father has, has a sad look on his guilt face. Guilt and revelation on his face. I yeah. still remember what the guy looks like, Those too. were the He's good old like days. Yeah. Anyways. Anyway. So let me tell you about my sources. I found a lot of articles just by Googling, but also through newspapers.com, which is our favorite site. My information came from the Boston Globe, the Portland Press Herald, the Bangor Daily News, the mdislander.com. Which is the which is also a newspaper, the Mount Desert Islander. Yes. Masslive.com, which I think is linked to is Masslive linked to the Boston Globe. No, it's um it's South I think it's South Shore, uh, some group of South Shore newspapers. Mm. Well I used it for info. the I used it for the what the Kathleen McLean murder a few yes. episodes ago. The Enterprise, which is the Brockton, Massachusetts newspaper, the Patriot Ledger, which is Quincy, Massachusetts, and the Boston Herald. Wow. I had lots of sources for those listeners that think all I do is read Wikipedia. You can kiss my big I, ass. I don't think that's any of our legitimate loyal listeners who okay. think that. That was I'll, just, you know, you have to shake off those I know. reviews. It just, I mean, I can take a lot of, like, if Oh, gonna... wow. What? Oh. I just remembered what my peeve was. Do you want to say it? Just very quickly. Okay. I'll just say it very quickly. There's no reason to give a podcast or a book or anything else a one-star review because it's the kind of thing you don't like. Oh, yeah. That's stupid. You know, it'd be one thing if if it was really awful in a damaging way, but if it's just not your cup of tea, just move on. And I'm not talking about my own books or anything. Actually, I'll talk about it more with my NNW. Okay. But that was my peeve. So I'll start with 
the first guy arrested for rape back in the day, and he's also the first one who was found in Maine. And that would be Gary Allen Irving, known to his Maine friends as Greg Irving. Hmm. Much of the information I have about Gary's early years is from a Press Herald article by Eric Russell, who interviewed friends and acquaintances, but not Gary's family, who would not cooperate. Gary was born in 1960. At the time, his parents, Carl and Margaret, lived in Rockland, Massachusetts, which, as I mentioned, is on the South Shore. For those of you not acquainted with the geography of Massachusetts, the South Shore refers to the towns along the coast between Boston and Cape Cod. Gary's dad, Carl, was an auxiliary police officer and a Vietnam vet who had served in both the Army and the Air Force. Margaret, Gary's mom, was called Peg and was a stay-at-home mom, as many were back then. Mm. A guy who grew up with Gary told the Press Herald, Carl and Peg, they were wonderful parents, so loving. Mm. When Gary was four, his younger brother Gregory was born. At age 12, Gary had heart surgery. He recovered with no lasting effects except two scars, one on his chest and one on his back. When Gary was a junior in high school, his family moved to a home on Myrtle Street in Rockland. This was in 1977. Gary became friends with his next-door neighbor, Doris Dixon. Even though Doris was only 12, so closer in age to Greg, she and Gary found they had a lot in common. At least this is what she told the Portland Wait, Press Wait, he would Herald. have been like 17. Yeah, he was 17, she was 12. Jesus. Personally, I'm not really sure what a 12-year-old girl and a 17-year-old boy could bond over. Not to be cynical, it seems odd to me. But then the 70s were kind of odd. Mm-hmm. According to the Press Herald, Gary and Doris, quote, connected over music and dancing. They spent most days after schooling in Irving's attic talking about life and relationships and listening to the sounds of KC and the Sunshine Band while a disco ball spun overhead. That seems highly unlikely to me, but okay, that's how Doris remembers it. Gary played the trombone in his high school band. He was a member of the school chorus and was in some of the musicals. He won the Purdue All-American Award for his trombone playing his senior year. He was a good student and had told people he was on his way to Boston College. One classmate told the Press Herald, I remember him as a socially awkward kid. He was like a million others. And like most of us back then, Gary had some friends. He wasn't a loner, but he wasn't prom king either. He was just, you know, I guess people would say I was socially awkward in high school. I don't know. Me too. The same classmate, Steve Weisgarber, who had been senior class president in 1978, told the Press Herald that Gary seemed changed that year. Quote, he looked a lot different, edgier maybe. But part of that might be that he just grew up. He looked more like a man. Doris Dixon, Gary's younger friend and neighbor, said she noticed a big difference in his demeanor in the spring of 1978. She said, I don't know what happened, but he just kind of snapped. Doris told the Press Herald that Gary drove the family's car through his parents' garage that spring in a burst of anger. <laughs> Greg, Gary's brother, told Doris that Gary had tried to attack their mother with a knife around the same time. Wait, so he was known in Maine as Greg, and he had a brother named Greg? He used his brother's name. We'll get to that. Okay. Doris said that when she asked Gary about the incident with his mother, he refused to talk about it, although he didn't deny it. After that, Doris avoided Gary. He gave her the creeps. 
She didn't have anything to do with him that summer, and then in September 1978, her mother showed her the newspaper with a picture of Gary and a story about him being a rapist. And I tried to find some stories from back then and was very disappointed. I was looking for stories about him with pictures or anything like that, and there was nothing. The last year of high school into the summer of 1978, Gary worked at the high-low grocery store part-time and drove around in his parents' green Pontiac, the same one he drove through the garage. Before I start talking about the crimes, I want to say that none of the victims in my story have names. Then, as now, victims of sexual assault's names are not made public unless the victim chooses to come forward. On the night of July 1st, 1978, shortly before midnight, an 18-year-old woman was walking home from a friend's house in Weymouth, Massachusetts. Weymouth is a town to the north of Rockland, Gary's hometown. As she walked by a green Pontiac, Gary jumped out of the bushes holding a knife. He grabbed her and forced her into the car. He drove her to a more isolated spot and raped her. Afterward, he dropped her off near her home. The rape was reported to the Weymouth police on July 2nd. On July 16th, in Cohasset, northeast of Rockland, a 16-year-old young woman was racing home on her bike trying to get home by an 11 p.m. curfew. Gary was standing next to the car and tried to talk to her as she rode by. She ignored him and kept going. A little bit later, the car drove by her, and she saw it parked under a streetlight. As she passed the car, Gary jumped out of the green Pontiac and forced her into his car with a knife pressed to her neck. She was subjected to repeated rapes. Mm. She asked Gary who he was and why he was doing this to her. He told her he was from the Cape, which is Cape Cod, to those of you who aren't familiar with it, and that people were paying him to attack her, and that they were going to drive by and make sure he did what he was supposed to do. That sounds like a really stupid story to think of to tell your victims, to tell you the truth. Yeah. The victim noticed a tassel hanging from the rear view mirror, the kind you get off your mortarboard when you graduate. Mm -hmm. This one was blue and white. She tried to get a look at the license plate, but he blocked her view. On July 29th in Holbrook, which is west of Rockland, another 16-year-old young woman reported being raped at knife point by a man driving a green Pontiac. In early September of 1978, back in Weymouth, Gary gave a ride to two young women, teenagers. He tried to attack them, but they were able to get away. He had told them his name was Bob and he was from the Cape. Some people were forcing him to pick them up and have sex with them, and these people were going to be checking up on him to make sure he did it. The two girls gave the police a description of the car, which matched the description given by the other recent victims. Also, one girl gave the police a partial license plate number, and the other girl gave them a blue and white tassel that she grabbed when she fled. Good for her. I know. Detective Sergeant Jack Rhodes thought of the area high schools that had blue and white for school colors. They were Cohasset, Situate, and Rockland. He told the Patriot Ledger that he ruled out Cohasset right away because it was a small school, and he figured she'd recognize her attacker because that's where she went. So he got the Situate, or Situate, sorry, and Rockland yearbooks. She looked through the Situate book first and didn't recognize anyone, but when she got to Rockland, Sergeant Rhodes said she picked him right out. And I said, go Bulldogs. Yeah. That's, that's, that's Rockland's mascot. I know, I'm sorry, I shouldn't make light of it. No. When the yearbook was shown to the other victims, they also identified Gary Irving. Gary Irving was arrested at his Rockland home on September 6, 1978 by Sergeant Rhodes and another officer. Gary didn't say much to the police when they brought him in, but he was asked by one of them if they had arrested the wrong person, and Gary shook his head. One arresting officer later said Gary seemed nonchalant, but he did say he didn't do it. Gary was charged with kidnapping, rape, and committing unnatural acts. The only thing I could find in the papers at the time of Gary's arrest was a small notice in the Boston Globe. The Patriot Ledger and some of the other papers had it, 
as well. And it read simply, held on seven rape counts. A Rockland man was arraigned yesterday in Quincy District Court on seven charges of rape and seven other charges, including kidnapping and assault. Gary Allen Irving, 18 of Myrtle Street, was released on $5,000 bail, and his case was continued until October 6th. He was arrested earlier this month by Cohasset police and was charged with several crimes by Cohasset, Randolph, and Weymouth police. I looked for some bigger articles about the rapes when they happened, as well as Gary's arrest, and couldn't find anything online. Gary Irving's trial was in June 1979 in Norfolk County Superior Court in Dedham, Massachusetts. He was tried on the three rapes in one trial. The prosecutor was Louis Sabadini, who was interviewed by the Press Herald. He pulled these girls right off the street. They were extremely brazen crimes. That was a quote, by the way. <laughs> Sabadini, <laughs> Sabadini told the Boston Globe he tried to get the attempted rape of the two girls from Weymouth added to the charges to be tried at the same trial, but the judge wouldn't allow it. And this is Rebecca talking now. I have one issue here. Well, not one, but this is an issue I have. There's a quote from the Portland Press-Herald. This is a quote. The case was prosecuted before DNA analysis became standard practice in forensic investigations, which meant the prosecution often relied more heavily on victims' testimony. Technically true, but DNA analysis wasn't standard practice because it didn't exist. The first case that relied on DNA evidence in court was in 1984 in England, and this was 1979. So, yes, it wasn't standard practice because it wasn't practice at all it just annoyed i, I agree that annoys me that, too so i knew it would thank louis sabadini said it was much more difficult to prosecute that type of case then and i'm assuming he's referring to the reliance on victims recollections which is probably true but well, it's not like everyone was flying blind before dna yeah you know? well I mean, they, they did other things my take too is and it's really not that much different now except for the dna thing and they say it's consensual mm-hmm. but it's always he said she said and it tends to weigh more toward the he said than the she said yes although these i have to say in the in these both these cases i have to give the cops credit in both these cases for being vigilant or for at least wanting to get to the bottom of it and stuff well you'll see okay none of the victims knew each other and they all identified gary from his yearbook picture they all described the same car green pontiac louis sabadini told the boston globe that at sentencing he was planning to recommend 10 to 15 years under what was called the walpole sentence meaning at least two-thirds of the sentence had to be spent in prison before gary could be eligible for parole Gary's lawyer filed motions to suppress the photo identification by the three victims and statements Gary made to police. In my experience, as a former legal secretary, those are standard motions, so they always file motions to suppress. Gary's defense at trial was based on mistaken identity. And even though I tend to think Gary's guilty, there's a case to be made that he could have been arrested in error, that the cops could have had him in mind when they showed the young woman the yearbook, and that a lot of people drove green Pontiacs. However, there's no evidence that the cops fastened their minds on him before she picked him out of that yearbook. And, and so, it would have been a hell of a coincidence with the tassel. Yeah, he wasn't even on the police radar right. before it was identified right. by the Cohasset victim in the yearbook. But I'm just saying, just to right. play devil's advocate. On June 27th, 1979, Gary Irving was convicted of three counts of rape and kidnapping. Judge Robert Prince ruled that Gary could be released to his parents' custody until sentencing. Louis Sabadini strongly objected to this decision, as he told the Press Herald, quote, I argued that he should be held until sentencing. I told the judge, this kid isn't going to show up. If it was me, I wouldn't. And also, he's, a serial, t- he's a serial rapist. Yes, 
In a July 2005 story in the Quincy Patriot Ledger, Judge Robert Prince, since deceased, said, I extended him a privilege and he ran out on it. That was just one of the things a, a young judge does. I may have made a mistake in doing it, but judges make mistakes. If you take me apart, do it sweetly. To be fair... Gary's father was a reserve police officer, and the judge thought he could trust Carl Irving to keep his son from fleeing, but Judge Prince was wrong. But yet he couldn't trust his father to keep Gary from raping women. I would argue, as we'll see later, that not only did his father not keep him from fleeing, I'm sure he helped him flee. I can't imagine that he didn't. But anyways... We'll get to that. Prosecutor Sabadini told the Globe that he told the judge, if you leave him out on bail now, it'll just be an inducement to run. And that's what happened. He took off. Detective John Rhodes was disgusted. He told the Patriot Ledger, everybody was saying, how could you let him go? Nobody could believe it. What did he he think would happen? I wouldn't have come back. Gary's lawyer, Joseph Killian, told Gary's parents after the conviction that their son had a good chance at an appeal. He later said he knew Gary was afraid of going to prison, but he never gave any hint that he was going to take off. For a few years, police watched Gary's folks home and checked in with friends and relatives in the United States as well as Canada. But after a while, they weren't as vigilant. They saw that it was pretty certain Gary was no longer in the area. But, you know, I'm like, yeah, but he could still have been in contact with his family just because yeah, no he's kidding. obviously he's not around. Oh, I don't know what to do. Brian Noonan, Cohasset's former police chief, told the Press Herald, We couldn't have surveillance on the family 24 hours a day. Not long after Gary took off, his family moved to Brockton, which is a bit southwest of Rockland, a much larger city, about 95,000 as opposed to the... I think it's like 18,000 in Rockland. Mm -hmm. And it's more urban. It's not a cute little town. It's a city, basically. A family friend told the Press Herald that the family tried to move on as best they could after Gary's arrest and conviction. His friend, John Albert, who lived with the Irvings after Gary's conviction, said, Even after all this happened, they were so nice, always smiling. They were like parents to me. I feel so bad for what they went through. In 1978, Peg Irving, Gary's mother, gave birth to a son who had Down syndrome. This new child with his need for special care became the focus of Carl and Peg's attention. John Albert told the Press Herald, After a while, it was almost like Gary never existed. Former police chief Brian Noonan had been on the Gary Irving case at the beginning, but he said it became his white whale. He became police chief in 1993. He kept the Irving file and a photo of Gary in his office, so he keep the case in mind. Noonan was just a patrolman when the rapes happened in the summer of 1978. He never worked on the case, but he never forgot it. He told the Boston Globe to do that to somebody, particularly a teenager. It is a sickening thing to me. Noonan told the Press Herald, His disappearance always dogged me a bit. I wanted to see some conclusion for those victims. Nothing ever panned out, though. Can I just, I know I keep interrupting, but it's just another peeve of mine when they want to see, like, especially in a case like this, they want to see, like, closure for the victims, which, yes, fine, is is good. But the bigger issue is a fucking serial rapist. Yes, well, they do. He does say that. I do have a quote of that later. You'll see. Oh, thank you. I don't know how to craft my story. So no, it's very know. well crafted, I appreciate Oh, what a good sister. The Cohasset police shared information about Gary Irving with Maine police. There was some belief that there could be something there. Gary used to go to Maine camping as a child with his family, but no information ever came back. Mm. In 1981... 
Bonnie Messenger from Gorham, Maine, married Greg Irving. Within the next few years, they settled in Gorham and started a family, a son, Brian, and a daughter, Jessica. Greg registered to vote in 1984 in Gorham, unaffiliated. He probably voted for Reagan. Republicans, though. yeah. He was even called for jury duty at one point. And, I'll, and I just want to break in here to my own story and say, mm. I'm sure he registered to vote. I bet if he had grown up there and wasn't on the lamb, he wouldn't have registered to vote. I bet he registered to vote as Greg to give himself... Um, a, a, a paper trail. Yeah. That exactly. he's Greg. Yes. Yes. He worked for the now-defunct Maine Savings Bank until it closed in 1991. A former co-worker told the Press Herald in 2013, He was so normal, we used to say he was one of the good guys. Mm. I guess he fooled everybody. Mm-hmm. After he worked for Maine Savings, Greg got a job with National Telephone and Technology in Scarborough. His job was to install phone and computer lines and systems for businesses. A co-worker at that job described Greg as hardworking but quiet. According to the co-worker, Greg didn't socialize with co-workers much. But he did have a camp somewhere in Maine. He liked to hunt and fish with a group of friends. A lot of neighbors called Greg a good guy and said he was always willing to help out and would plow their driveways in the winter and they'd see him at the backyard grill flipping burgers in the summer, according to the Boston Globe. After Gary Gregg's arrest... Boston Globe. Have you figured out that Greg is Gary? After Greg mm, or yeah. Gary. Mostly because uh, he said, bo- said so at the <laughs> The Boston Globe talked to neighbors. Alyssa Lurvey, an 18-year-old neighbor, told the Globe that along with Gary and Bonnie, a young man, a young woman, and a baby also lived in the home. Alyssa said, it actually kind of freaks me out because it never. I never shut my shades and my room is right there. We don't lock our door. I don't know what I'd do if he decided to walk in one day, come into my room. That's really, really scary. Greg, or Gary's next-door neighbor, Leroy Dixon, had known Bonnie since she was a little girl. He told the Globe that Gary was a good neighbor. I wish I had a main that could do a main accent. Quote, This is not a highly exciting neighborhood. To me, it's just a very ordinary American neighborhood. Yeah. About 1996. About 1996, Gary was added to the Massachusetts Most Wanted list. His case was featured on Unsolved Mysteries, America's Most Wanted, and Stories of the Highway Patrol. I attempted to find any of these shows online and sadly was not able to. The shows caused tips to come in and all were followed up on according to police. They tried to follow up within 48 hours but didn't have a lot of resources and time to spend on the case. In 2001, the Quincy Patriot Ledger had a story with the headline, On the Run Since 1979, Rockland Man Among Most Wanted in State. In the story, John Rhodes, the original detective, wonders if they think Whitey's so hard to find, referring to mob boss Whitey Bulger, who was on the run for 16 years and convicted of 11 murders and sentenced to life in prison in 2013. He was killed in prison last year. Because of all the resources he has, why is this guy so hard to find? And he didn't say all that stuff about Whitey Bulger. I just stuck that. That was in, that was parenthetical. He actually said, if they think Whitey's so hard to find because of all the resources he has, why is this guy so hard to find? Mm-hmm. Unlike Whitey Bulger, who had stashed money and false IDs all over the United States for when he decided to flee, Gary was only 18, had a part-time job, and a family without a lot of money. In the article, John Rhodes says, quote, I can't imagine what he's been up to. Massachusetts State Police Detective 
someone, sorry guy, I'm not going to go through all my papers to find his name, Mm. but he told the paper, it's good that every so often these shows and newspapers report about him because it lets the victims know we haven't forgotten. Yeah, but are you doing anything about it? Yeah. Yes, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, my and my other thing about, like, getting justice for the victims and stuff, another reason that bugs me is the bigger thing is the justice system needs to work. So you want to find people not to get quote-unquote justice or closure for the victims, but you want to find the people to show that people don't can't get away with serial rape and that the justice no system shit. will find people who are serial rapists, try them, and put them in prison. You know, it's not just be- I know. it's not just for the victims. Detective Rhodes told the paper that Gary Irving was actually suspected of at least a dozen other attempted rapes and assaults, mm-hmm. but they didn't have enough evidence to arrest him on those. Well, also, if only two percent or three percent of rape victims ever report it, you know, we'll talk about this later because I have a lot of thoughts on okay, that. Good. The house that Greg or Gary and Bonnie lived in had been her parents. She alone bought it from them in 2002. It's on South Street in Gorham, which is also State Route 114, a busy thoroughfare through town. Although Bonnie hadn't bought the house yet, Gary had most likely been living there for years before that, probably since the 1980s. The articles weren't clear, but he had they had lived in that house before she bought it. About the same time Bonnie was purchasing the house in 2002, Chief Noonan retired. He told Detective Sergeant Greg Lennon, who he'd assigned the case, to please keep working on it. Lennon told the Boston Globe back in 2013, the credit for this whole thing can be traced back to the individuals that did the work 34 years ago. As a Cohasset police officer, someone that's now carrying the flag for the guys who captured and had this guy convicted in the first place, it was almost like it was my job now. It's like it was almost like, yeah, it was yeah, your, it was job, your job, asshole. <laughs> They're retired. <laughs> no, he, he's trying. When uh. Carl Irving died in 2003, the police were at the funeral to see if Gary showed up. He didn't. In 2005, Detective Gregory Lennon told the Patriot Ledger, it's sort of amazing that he was able to disappear like that. The chances are better than not he's left the country. For him to walk into Mexico is entirely possible. In the same story, Prosecutor Sabadini said, this kid was looking at double numbers. It's a big incentive to leave. Carl Irving, the father, had testified in court that he did not know where his son was. On March 27th, 2013, Gorham police officer Michael Brown answered a phone call from Massachusetts State Police. They told him they, along with members of the Maine State Police, were on their way to arrest somebody on South Street, but they wanted a local cop to be the one to knock on the front door. Officer Brown told the Press Herald it was clear they wanted him. They didn't even want us to call dispatch about it. When Officer Brown knocked on the front door, Gary and Bonnie were watching TV. They had just put their granddaughter to bed and had just baked an eclair cake Ooh. together for Bonnie's co-workers, which I'm assuming is must be kind of like Boston cream pie. That's not what I'm it thinking. probably has that custard in it mm. with chocolate uh, frost like stuff on it. When Gary answered the door... Officer Brown told him he was there because of a 911 hang-up call. He asked Gary to step out. When Gary got out there, state troopers were waiting to arrest him. They asked him to lift his shirt up so they could look at his chest and back. Sure enough, there were the scars from his heart surgery 40 years before. While the state police were dealing with Gary, Officer Brown went inside to explain to Bonnie what was going on. Officer Brown told the Press Herald, quote, She was in complete shock. If she said she knew nothing about her husband's past, I believe her. 
At first, Gary tried to tell the cops they had the wrong guy. But as he sat in the cruiser for the half-hour ride from Gorham to the Cumberland County Jail in Portland, he gave in and asked Maine State Trooper Sergeant Robert Burke, How did you find me? How indeed. Good question. Police were cagey about how they found out where Gary Irving was, but an anonymous law enforcement official told the Press Herald that a family member tipped them off. Mm. And the Boston Globe reported that investigators had visited Florida before heading to Maine. Norfolk District Attorney Michael Morrissey said that over the years, the police have followed up tips from all over New England, Georgia, Tennessee, Kentucky, Colorado, and Florida. Quote, at the end of the day, good old-fashioned police work solved the problem. No, it was somebody giving them a tip. Oh, say, I know, because they did do a lot of investigating, but most of that time he was living in plain sight, 150 miles away. Yeah, no Not to shit. be too judgmental, because I don't know exactly how they found him, but come on. For his part, former Chief Brian Noonan said, quote, It was a feeling of relief. I made it a point in my tenure as chief to get this resolved, and I was unsuccessful doing it. I'm just thrilled he's back in custody and will do his time. In another Globe article, Brian Noonan was asked if Gary looked like he remembered. He said, not really, quote, except for the eyes. They look exactly the same, kind of a sleepy look, kind of a cold stare. Gary's fingerprints taken in 1978 were in the federal database all this time. They have never been matched to any crimes. He had one parking ticket, and his only other interaction with police was when he and his wife reported her credit card stolen in 2006. Gary appeared in court in Portland on Monday, April 1st, 2013, and told the judge he would not fight his extradition to Massachusetts. His main family members watched the court proceedings in a daze. At the time, his main attorney, Christopher Letty, told the Boston Globe, the person they thought of as a husband and a father for 30-plus years is somebody else, and a lot of people have a completely different version of this person. That's a surreal event. They're just still in shock. When Gary Irving's Gorham House searched, police found four rifles, a six-shot revolver, a pellet gun, and about 300 rounds of ammunition. That's mean. I find it hard to believe that Gary Irving didn't commit any violent sex crimes in 34 years. After that spree of rapes in the summer of 1978, he's just going to stop? I'm not the only one who thinks so. Former Chief of Police Noonan told the Press Herald, quote, It has always been my concern that there were other victims out there. I have a hard time believing he would have just stopped. Chief Noonan told the Boston Globe, In my view, serial rapists and pedophiles are right on top of the repeat offender list. Definitely, that's what was in the back of my mind for 25, 30 years. That's why when I became chief, I resurrected the folder again, and I said to the detectives, let's solve this thing. William Marshall, a national expert on sex offender treatment and director of Rockwood Psychological Services in Kingston, Ontario, was quoted in the Press Herald. It would be very unusual for someone who commits crimes like this at age 18 to suddenly abstain from further offenses and to maintain abstinence for 34 years. That's a truly remarkable example of self-restraint. I cannot believe he did not harbor deviant fantasies about his offenses for at least the next several years. And continuing in an email to the Press Herald, William Marshall pointed out that most rapists slow down by 40 years old due to lower testosterone. Quote, nevertheless, it is quite surprising that he was able to get through those high-risk years between his last known offense at age 18 years. But, of course, we do not know if he was offense-free for those years. Right. Steve McCausland told the Press Herald, uh, and Steve McCausland is, what, is his, what was his? 
He was head spokesman. Of, I don't know. He's the police guy. He told the Press Herald shortly after Gary's arrest that Maine law enforcement would be searching open cases to see if anything matched up with Gary. I haven't seen anything since indicating that he was linked to any unsolved rapes or assaults. For his part, former Detective John Rhodes had some opinions about the court that he shared with the Boston Herald after Gary's arrest. The headline was, Retired Cop Embarrassed by the Court. Hmm. John Rhodes said there were a lot of reluctant and non-cooperative victims who did not want to get involved with the court system. There were other victims and other assaults. I hope they do a major background investigation of where he's been the last few years to see how he kept out of sight and through his DNA to see if he's implicated in any new case. I'd be astonished if he just quit cold turkey attacking women. If he did quit cold turkey, it was because he was scared as shit he'd get caught yeah. and go to prison. And so he somehow yeah. managed to restrain himself. Yeah. Recalling Gary Irving when he arrested him, Rhodes said, he certainly had no remorse for his crimes. He was more interested in playing a sort of CSI investigator, wondering which questions he should answer and which would incriminate him. He was like calculating how he would get away with it. There was no remorse or fear factor. On April 4th, 2013, Boston Globe reported that the speculation that Gary might face charges and a trial for the attempted rapes of the two young women in Weymouth. I couldn't find any subsequent evidence that anything came of that. And a slight tangent, I will say that those two girls should get a medal for their fast thinking because who knows if he ever would have been arrested without them. Totally. I totally agree with that because... I mean, those two girls, if they wouldn't have had the tassel... They wouldn't have had partial license plate matched the license plate on his father's car. So those girls basically got all the, the evidence right. that started. On April 12, 2013, Gary appeared in Norfolk Superior Court where District Attorney Michelle Armour argued for a speedy sentencing. At the same hearing, the judge ordered Gary Irving to give a DNA sample. As of today, I have not found any stories linking him to any other crimes. After the hearing, Gary's attorney, Neil Tassel, told reporters a DNA sample would be a help to Gary and that he was considering an appeal on the 34-year-old sentence. Tassel was convinced that Gary hadn't attacked anyone hmm. during his time in Maine. Although he conceded, quote, I know nothing about the case other than what I've read in the newspapers, frankly, and what the Commonwealth has told me. I need to do my best to exhaust locating the transcripts as well as pull together resources about what Mr. Irving has been doing with his life and his contributions to the community in the last 35 years. Neil Tassel had only just been appointed to the case. Not only was he representing Gary for his sentencing, but he wanted to lay the groundwork for a possible appeal. He said, one of the most significant aspects of the case to me is that things were done very different. These were crimes that were very traumatic. They were terrible attacks that occurred. I now know in many other cases that people have been cleared by DNA. Identification technology and forensics have changed a great deal since 1978. Mm. And attorney Neil Tassel also thought it doubtful that a serial rapist could just stop doing it abruptly. He told reporters, crimes of this nature don't come out of thin air. It seems very unlikely to me that a person of his character would have committed these crimes and then suddenly lost any urge to commit these types mm. of crimes. I will say... That he is correct that DNA clears innocent people, but if you're a defense attorney that has any inkling at all that your guy is guilty, mm -hmm. yes, the last friggin' thing you well, want. Well, I have some thoughts on that. Okay. 
As of the 2013 article, the full court transcript from 1979 hadn't been found, and it would have been necessary to launch an appeal, depending on the reasons for the appeal. I haven't seen any reports of an appeal being filed in this case yet. The Norfolk County DA's office would not comment on whether or not DNA evidence existed. To me, this sounds like probably not. I would venture a guess that very little physical evidence is still around, or they would have said they had it. On May 23, 2013, Gary Irving was sentenced in Norfolk Superior Court to consecutive sentences of 18 to 20 years for kidnapping and rape. Mm. He would not be eligible for parole for 24 years. DA Michael Morrissey told The Globe, we don't think he'll be getting out. Mm-hmm. Superior Court Judge Kenneth Fishman said that Gary deserved the sentence despite defense attorney Neil Tassel's argument that Gary had been a, quote, considerate, gentle individual during his time on the run. Judge Fishman said he did so, at least in part, to avoid discovery. He Mm -hmm. was and remains in my mind a dangerous individual. Gary's lawyer told the Globe that Gary had no memory of raping anyone. He had fled because he was innocent of the crimes and was afraid to go to prison. Quote, he has no recollection of ever assaulting anyone. Tassel thought the sentence, quote, extraordinarily long and didn't think Judge Fishman appreciated the, quote, productive and positive life Gary had led in Maine. I think it's interesting that it's worded, he had no memory of it. I know. Instead of, he didn't rape anyone. I know. I think that was interesting, too. Gary's relatives were in court that day, but would not be interviewed and wouldn't comment to reporters. Some of the victims' relatives spoke to the press. A sister of one of the victims told the Boston Globe, It was a travesty of justice, but they didn't give up on her, and were very thankful for that. The victims gave impact statements at the hearing. One victim's niece read her statement for her aunt. In the statement, the victim said she clenched her fist while she slept and keeps her windows shut and locked even in warm weather. She attempted suicide in 1992 and always had relationship issues. Quote, I could never let anyone get close. The niece herself teared up when she told the court how her aunt, her best friend, was so terrified and how the rape had shattered her ability to trust. As Gary's sentence was read, he didn't show much emotion. But during the victim impact statements, he rubbed his eyes, clasped his hands, and shook his head and sometimes slumped in his chair. Another victim gave an audio statement telling the court, The memory of that day has never left me. While Gary was able to start a new life, she could never escape the damage the attack caused. Quote, I would never look at another man with the same innocence. According to the Boston Globe, when she said that, Gary put his face in his hands. None of his three victims ever married or had children. Gary's court troubles didn't end in Massachusetts. Remember those guns the cops found? Mm -hmm. He had nine, and two of them were sawed-off shotguns. Not only is it illegal for a felon to own guns, it's illegal for anyone to own a sawed-off shotgun. He was also using his brother's social security number and name, which is illegal, if you didn't already know that. In July of 2013, he pled guilty to the federal gun charges and social security fraud. He was sentenced to 81 months, Gary's lawyer, J. Hillary Billings, argued to have his sentence concurrent with the Massachusetts time, but Judge George Single said no. Judge Single said that Gary was using the fake ID to avoid taking responsibility for his violent crimes in Massachusetts, and the judge cited the victim's statements from the Massachusetts sentencing hearing as part of the reason why he wasn't going to give Gary a break. Gary's family and friends were in the courtroom and spoke on his behalf. They called him loving, gentle, a great big teddy bear. 
They said he was a good father and helped his son with football and his daughter with dance recitals, took them to doctor's appointments and was an avid cook, etc. Julie Albert, who worked with Gary and was no relation to John Albert, who had lived with Gary's family in Massachusetts. I noticed they had the same last name. Well, I noticed there were two Dixons, too. Oh, yeah, but one's Dixon with an X and one's Dick son. Mm, you know, but, like DX, but, you, okay. but you can't know that by hearing it. That's true. That's very true. So she worked with Gary at the telephone place and told the court, the words that come to mind when I think of Greg are honest, trustworthy, caring, a family man, a teacher. His former boss and owner of the company said, this is emotional because he's just a very good man. Bonnie Irving, Gary's wife, said, he's just a wonderful person who has really always put everyone else first. This has all been such a shock and devastating for the whole family and the community where we live. The judge asked Bonnie if she'd met Gary's family, including the brother with the same first name. Quote, you thought they were both named Greg? (laughs) (laughs) Judge Single asked. Bonnie said she had met the family, but she thought they were his aunt, uncle, and cousin. The judge wasn't impressed. Hmm. Quote, that's called aiding and abetting. Also, if there's any doubt that he did it, it's like, then why are you lying about your family? You know? No shit. Assistant U.S. Attorney Darcy McElwee reiterated what Judge Fishman said at his Massachusetts sentencing, that Gary lived a good life because he had to in order to avoid being caught. And while he was having fun and having a family, his victims were traumatized and unable to move on with life. AUSA McElwee said, I thought about that when Gary's daughter Jessica said, I wouldn't have been the same without him. I can't help but think at least one of the victims would agree with that sentiment. Mm. Gary, for his part, didn't show a lot of emotion during the sentencing. But he told the court, I'm sorry to my family. I've put a great burden on them. I guess I didn't realize how bad the crime was. And I'm assuming by this he was talking about his main crime since he denied doing the rapes. And I don't think he'd say that about the rapes unless he was a total moron. Gary blew a kiss to Bonnie as he left the courtroom. Eric Russell of the Press Herald interviewed residents and business owners in Gorham a town of about 16,000 and home to one half of the University of Southern Maine's campus, which is my alma mater. Yeah. Alma mater. The other half is in Portland. Everyone said he looked familiar, but they didn't know him. Probably because he looks like about 50% of the guys (laughs) between 40 and 60 in Maine. With stocky, with a beard, long hair, glasses. And also, too, not that everybody has to know everybody, but he lives near the village and... He'd lived there since the 1980s. Yeah. You'd think people would know him. Well, they said he looked familiar. Yeah, but, I mean... Yeah, I know. Even, like, if... I don't know. Yeah, I know. Yeah. A lot of people knew Bonnie Irving, the messenger, and her family, though. David Butler, pastor of the First Congregational Church, said, At this point, I think everyone in town is just feeling sympathy for her. Officer Brown said, She's a victim of his too, her future. So much of her life is a lie. Sean Moody, Gorham resident, (laughs) auto body repair business owner, former candidate for governor, and acquaintance of Bonnie Irving, had sympathy for her, but also the victims. Quote, Could these women ever put this behind them, knowing he was out there somewhere? To which I say, thank you, Sean. Yeah. Even though I didn't vote for him and think he's No, he's a Republican. But it was nice of him to... 
say that. Gary's former class president, Steve Weisgarber, said, It's awful on so many levels. The wake of destruction he created. It's amazing that 34 years went by for this to be resolved. And Gary's childhood buddy, Doris Dixon, told the Press Herald that although she was never a victim, she would like to visit Gary. I just want to ask, what happened to you? She says. Mm. And now... For rapist number two. Can can I just say something about Gary? Yes. I think it's interesting, not to belabor it, because I kind of said it a few minutes ago, you can't live in a town that size. I mean, for Maine, that's a fairly big town. But, you know, people knew his wife. He'd lived there since the 1980s. I know. And yet nobody knew who he was. You know, his neighbors thought he was a nice guy because he shoveled his driveway, but he obviously... Like, even by happenstance, if you know somebody for that long, you know their spouse, you meet their spouse at things. I know. I mean, towns have events that everybody goes to, and it just sounds like he deliberately kept a low profile. Oh, I think he did, because a couple people said he was pretty quiet. Like, people that worked with him, he didn't really socialize, which I don't either, but... Yeah. But people, I don't socialize, but people know who I am. I know, me too. I mean, my town is smaller, but still. Yeah, I agree. And now, for rapist number two, Hmm. Ivan Keith. Ivan committed his Massachusetts crimes when he lived in Bridgewater, Massachusetts, and those rapes occurred in that area. I had a harder time finding out about Ivan's background than I did for Gary, but I'll tell you what I know. Unlike his fellow masshole rapist, Ivan Keith did not keep off the radar as far as being a sexual predator and all-around creep. Ivan left Massachusetts in 2003. He failed to appear in Brockton District Court on a charge of open and gross lewdness that was to take place in October 2003. According to court documents, Ivan told a family member, they want my DNA. I did some bad things, and if they get my DNA, I'm going to do 80 years. Mm. Even before some of his worst crimes were known, Ivan had a history of sex-related crimes, according to MassLive.com. In 1983, he was charged with open and gross lewdness. He was about 25 at that time. In 1989, he was charged with raping his 13-year-old relative, so he would have been like 29. And I was unable to find out what punishment for that was, but since he was out of jail in 1995, he must have not served more than five or six years because he was charged again in 1995 for open and gross lewdness in Brockton. Do you know what constitutes open and gross lewdness? I'm assuming it's whacking off in public or something mm-hmm. like that. But it, it didn't it didn't explain what it was. And and the other thing is lots of times with sex crimes, they plea them down. You know, that somebody will rape yeah. or assault someone and they you know, and then the you yes. know, the victim doesn't want to testify for obvious reasons and stuff and they end up pleading down to a lesser charge. I'm not saying that's what yeah, happened. Yeah, I'd like with to him. know what his punishment Yeah. I could have done, I didn't have enough time to do more research, but this one about raping his, the 13-year-old relative. I know. He was 29. Yeah. He was charged with, I don't know if he was convicted. Then in Maine, in 1999, he was charged with being a peeping Tom. Well, that's not, I don't know what the what the te- we get <laughs> it. legal term is it he was looking into motel windows and maybe that's his idea of you know he's on vacation vacation mm-hmm. fun he was also charged in maine in 2000 with indecent conduct and got a sentence of six months so maine at least sentences people for shit 
Mm-hmm. In 2003, Ivan was charged with flashing women at Bridgewater State University, Massachusetts. This about the time he, quote, fell off the face of the earth, prosecutor William McCauley told MassLive.com. But people on Mount Desert Island in Maine had known a guy named Chris Keith, who was a perv and a creep. In January of 2013, a guy knocked on the door of a house where a 17-year-old girl was dog-sitting. According to court documents, the man was asking her to let him in, and the teenager was afraid and called her mother, who alerted police. Police arrived and spoke to the guy, who told them that his name was Chris Keefe. No charges were filed. So are you saying Keefe instead of Keith? Yes, that's what it said in the article. But it makes me wonder if the cop just wrote the name down wrong. Yes. Because, or he could have called himself Chris Keefe, who knows. It, in the paper it was spelled K-E-E-F-E instead of Keith, as in Keith Richard. In August 2013, Chris Keith was working at a farm stand owned by a friend. A family with two daughters, ages 11 and 13, stopped in. And Chris offered to show the girls the bunnies. Mm. When he brought them to the rabbits, he reportedly exposed himself to the girls. The family were tourists and didn't want to pursue charges. Uh. In 2018, Chris Keith appeared before the Board of Selectmen to complain about a ramshackle trailer on the next-door property. According to the Brockton, Massachusetts Enterprise, the house in which Ivan was living in Seal Cove belonged to his ex-wife. He had previously lived in, quote, a remote cabin on 50 acres owned by his brother in another part of Maine. End quote. Since all Massachusetts papers think everything in Maine is, quote, remote, <laughs> I have no idea where that could be, and none of the Maine stories had that information. By the way, I noticed the Maine papers called him, quote, Massachusetts man, and the Massachusetts papers, quote, called him Maine man. I thought that was interesting. I say he's Massachusetts man because he too. lived yeah. most of his life in Massachusetts. On August 2nd, 2019, police arrested Ivan Keith at his home on Tremont Road in Seal Cove. And I don't know if I said where Seal Cove was, but it's on the western part of Mount Desert Island. It's pretty there. Yeah. Except for him. He said to police, I get it. My time is up. Then he told them he thought about leaving through the back door and going on the run. He boasted that he thought he could avoid being arrested, quote, longer than Whitey Bulger. (laughs) So Whitey comes up in both of these stories. (laughs) Yes, his time was up. He was charged with five counts of aggravated rape, two counts of kidnapping, two counts of assault and battery with a dangerous weapon, two counts of threats to commit bodily harm, assault with a dangerous weapon, breaking and entering into a building in the night with intent to commit a felony, failure to register as a sex offender, making false statements, and perjury. Wow. He was held without bail, and he was and he denied the charges. Mm. But he would have had a hard time denying that he was the person who committed the rapes he was charged with thanks to DNA evidence, and we'll discuss more about the DNA later. When Ivan Keith fled Massachusetts 16 years before his arrest, he was not on the radar as a rapist who brutally tied up and raped four women between February 1996 and November 1998. But by the time he was found in 2019, police were more than certain they'd found their man. The first known rape was on February 15, 1996. A 60-year-old woman was working in an office after hours at Quincy High School. A man entered the building and made small talk with the janitor, telling the janitor he'd gone to school there 20 years before. Then Ivan the man entered the office and it's not clear but i'm assuming that since it was winter and dark in the afternoon the lights were on and ivan had seen the woman working through the window that's how i figure he knew she was in there alone Mm -hmm. 
Ivan held a gun to on the victim and tied her up with a scarf and raped her. Ivan took the woman's license and told her that since he knew who she was now, he would harm her if she went to police, but luckily she was brave enough to ignore him. And investigators did find out that Ivan was indeed a former student at Quincy High School. And I wrote, go presidents. That's the, <laughs> their mascot's the president. Because John Adams presidents. and, and Quincy John Adams. Adams. Yeah. And by the way, Quincy's colors are blue and white also. And by the way, in Massachusetts, they pronounce it Quincy. Quincy. I tried to pronounce it Quincy, but I gave up. So I'm sorry, Massachusetts people. But you're the one sending us your rapists, just like Mexico. (laughs) There's a reason we cut off from Massachusetts 200 (laughs) years ago. The next rape, we shouldn't be laughing. I'm talking about these horrible crimes. I know. The next rape was November 22nd, 1996 in West Bridgewater. A 32-year-old woman had just left a parent-teacher conference, and I couldn't find out which school, but it was the middle school. The middle school and elementary school are around the same. They're the Bobcats, by the way. Mm -hmm. I had to keep looking at mascots after I did it once. She was walking home on a dirt path. And Ivan jumped out of the bushes wearing mask and gloves. He pointed a gun at her, and she thought he, she was being robbed. She threw her purse at him, and he said, I don't want your pocketbook, I want you. And he pulled her into the woods, tied her up with her bootlaces, and raped her. On July 27, 1997, at about 2.45 in the afternoon, a 36-year-old woman was walking on the track at the Bristol Plymouth Regional High School in Taunton, which are the Tigers. <laughs> Again, Ivan jumped out of the woods wearing a mask and gloves. He used her shoelaces to tie her up and raped her more than once. While he was attacking her, one of his gloves fell off and she saw a ring on his finger that she was able to later describe to police. The fourth incident was on November 22, 1998, so I realized it was exactly two years after the second rape. Mm-hmm. A 47-year-old woman was at work cleaning the offices of the Steve Porter Appraisal Services in Easton. He pushed her back into the building and into an office. He tied her up with shoelaces and raped her. He threatened her also, according to one article, but it didn't specify how. But I'm assuming he did the same thing. He probably took her ID and Mm. threatened her. At the time, there was no way to identify the rapist because of the mask and gloves, but luckily the rape kits were kept from all four victims. One of the victims, the article I read on Mass dot live didn't say which one uh, but i'm assuming it was the latest victim because the woman the one that was cleaning her office because she kept in touch with the eastern police detective it was eastern police detective william fulcher so i'm assuming it was that last rape the whole time she kept calling him for whatever however many years he always told her that they were still on the case and he told her someday they'd find the guy and arrest him when detective fulcher was getting close to retiring he contacted the state police and in 2011 made sure the rape kit was sent for dna testing bristol county da thomas quinn's investigators started working on cold cases around the same time 2011 and sent the west bridgewater and the taunton rape kits to be tested also and all the findings were entered into codis which do you know what codis stands for i was going to look it up see C-O-D-I-S. Yeah. Central something something. But Investigation. All you, all you true blah, crime blah, people blah. know. Yeah, CODIS. Yeah. When the DNA from those three rapes was put into the database, there was a match to a case in Quincy. Quincy. <laughs> so police knew that all four of these rapes were committed by the same person, but they didn't know who that person was. In Massachusetts, a grand jury can indict a DNA profile, even if the person who it belongs to is unknown, which I didn't know that. Yeah, well, a grand jury can indict a ham sandwich. Mmm, a ham sandwich. 
I can't remember I, who said that. I but. know. I've heard it, though. Mm-hmm. Ivan's profile was indicted in 2012. Last year, the investigators, and I'm unclear from the articles if they were state police or DA investigators or what, just said investigators, started working on the case again and sent the DNA they had to the Paramon lab in Virginia. That's the lab that not only searches for familial DNA, but can tell investigators what color, eyes, hair, etc. the person has. The results showed a common ancestor, a now-dead mother, who had four sons, and one of those sons lived in Bridgewater at the time of the rapes. Ivan, of course. They looked into his criminal background and saw his history. They found out there was a warrant for his arrest. It's not really explained very well how they actually found him in Seal Cove. An article on mdislander.com says that when the warrants were entered into the National Crime Information Center, investigators from Massachusetts State Police, with the help of Maine State Police, the Bar Harbor Police Department, and the FBI were able to locate Keith in Seal Cove. It must have had to do with him being in the system in Maine. I would think that partially that, and maybe property records, if that was his ex-wife. I don't... Right, and just changing his first name, you know, isn't much of a way to hide. Although it worked for Gary. And by the way, Chris was his brother's name, too. He was using his brother's name But Gary didn't commit, or at least wasn't caught committing any crimes in Maine. No, that's true. I know. Once he was arrested... A vape pipe in his possession was (laughs) tested for DNA. He matched. At the time of his arrest and return to Massachusetts, prosecutor William McCauley told MassLive.com, these women have waited approximately over 20 years for this day. That doesn't even make any sense, approximately over. In terms of the identification of the defendant, Bristol District Attorney Thomas Quinn III told reporters, I am elated, frankly, that this defendant has been apprehended and that we're in the first official step of bringing him to justice. He's entitled to protections as any citizen, but I can only imagine thinking back over 20 plus years to the victims in this case who are just going about their ordinary lives doing ordinary things that we all do and who are treated so inhumanly and brutally. I hope despite what terrible things are alleged to have happened to them, they can have some solace that we put effort in to get this guy. Mm. Ivan Keith in separate superior courts, Brockton and Norfolk, in November and December of 2020 respectively, pled guilty to all the rapes. When he was pleading guilty in the second court, the rape of the woman at that Quincy High School, his lawyer, Melissa Fournier, told the court her client was remorseful and didn't want the victim, now in her 80s, to have to testify. Huh. Yeah, I'm sure. In both cases, he was sentenced to 19 to 20 years in state prison, followed by five years probation. He will serve the sentences concurrently, unfortunately. But he didn't get the 80 years he thought he was going to get, I wish. How After old his, He's 62 Okay, now. well, he'll be wicked 63. old. Yeah. After his sentencing hearing in Brockton, Plymouth District Attorney Timothy Cruz said, Ivan Keith violently attacked this woman and then fled to Maine where he went on with everyday life, leaving the victim behind to cope and try to move on from this terrorizing incident. Years passed, but investigators never gave up on finding justice for this victim. And about both men, I don't think either one, especially Gary Irving, would have gotten away with his crimes for so long if he hadn't had help from his family members. Mm -hmm. We know that Gary had help from his family, and the cops knew it too. They just couldn't prove it, but I'm sure they knew it. Mm -hmm. As for Ivan, his family didn't know for sure what he had done, but he himself admitted that he had done something bad, and he was already a convicted rapist. Right. He was also using his brother's name. 
He was using his brother's and his ex-wife's property to hide. I mean, I'm disgusted, and I can't imagine if I were a victim how I would feel knowing that their family members friggin' helped them. But that's my story. Another thing, too, is people can say, oh, wow, DNA, what did we ever do before? But one of the issues then, and still an issue now, is that the red flags for guys like this are dismissed. Mm -hmm. Things like being a peeping Tom... Sexually assaulting a minor family member is taken more seriously now. Yes. But other crimes, like, are pleaded down. Victims are still treated like they're the ones who are guilty, which makes it harder to convict people. So people end up pleading to lesser charges. Like, the whole justice system back then, you know, in the 70s and 80s, it was worse. But still now is set up to minimize crimes that are less than rape, but they're all crimes that should be red flags. Yeah, You know, being a peeping Tom, wanking in public. And he kept doing stuff. The other thing is, the thing that I found interesting was Gary would have only gotten like 15 years probably if he hadn't run away. Right. And now he's got 40 something. I I don't think they think in those terms. I just thought it was interesting. Yeah. But then Ivan thought he was going to get this huge sentence. And he, I mean, honestly, his sentence isn't that big. He's in his 60s. I know. And prison isn't like a health club. You know, so I agree with that, but just the, it's just right. like well, it's all those prison the, it's sentences, the principle of it, though. Uh, right. It, to to me, the length of prison sentences, I I get more and more. I think they're meaningless in a lot of ways. And what really should happen is that crimes that are lesser crimes should be taken more seriously when they're mm-hmm. when they're crimes like you know gateway or or tangential crimes to bigger things like somebody who kills animals that should be taken yes, seriously. Exactly. So instead of waiting till somebody does a really bad crime and giving them a ridiculously long sentence, smaller crimes should have sentences that are appropriate for the seriousness of, like, what they're related to, you know? Mm -hmm. And the other thing, too, is, for instance, like with Gary, if somebody is a serial rapist, don't fucking let them out till they're sentencing. And if he was a black kid in Boston, he sure as hell wouldn't have been let out, you know? I mean, and and I know the judge, blah, 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 Mm -hmm. but... That happens a lot because his father's a cop and he's a, and he had red flags. I mean, he attacked his mother. Yeah, I'd like to know more about what and, was and, going on behind those the scenes are just with the him. Things, those are just the things you're reading about in the paper. Yeah, you, you know, don't people know. have a tendency to dismiss, like, oh, he's the guy who shovels everybody's driveway, so he's a nice guy. They don't fucking know if he's a nice guy or not. I know. And yeah. I just wonder about him. I mean, I don't have a doubt that he, that he did it. I'm pretty sure he did it. But it is weird. Well, I don't know how. Well, I don't have a doubt he I did it. I just wonder if he did do stuff. But You, you don't know, though. Well, the, the partial he, license if he plate. Did stuff, the ta- oh, no, oh, no, no, not that. I'm saying we don't know, like, when he was in Maine, just yes. because there's no, there's no evidence if doesn't he mean did, he didn't he, do he anything. If he did, he was probably very, very careful. To... I mean, he never did stuff in his own neighborhood yeah. when he was young. There are a lot of unsolved rapes in Maine. His lawyer said he wanted his DNA tested. Was it? It was tested. Oh, okay. They had a hearing that he had to give his DNA, and they were going to put it in CODIS. So I'm assuming we would have heard if it had come up. 
Right. So, but that doesn't mean that right. he didn't commit any crimes right. just because they didn't find his DNA on stuff. Right. He, you don't always leave DNA. The thing is, Gary, he was hiding in plain sight, but he wasn't out there exposing himself and right. and doing all sorts of shit. Like, and but to be fair, I'm not saying that the crime that he was wanted for, Ivan Keith, was not serious because i agree with you that it's a red flag but they didn't know he was a serial rapist when he got away but, but they should only knows what else he did in maine though we don't know right, i mean right. i guess they could, you know too, it depends how many rape kits haven't been processed right, right and how many women haven't come forward and the thing too is he was 29 when he raped his relative that's a guy mm-hmm. you want to have on your radar sometimes they just don't have a lot of imagination i'm not you know i don't know what else went into the investigations but especially when it's in different jurisdictions and stuff as we know and both of those though it was just like we were saying with other cold cases they each had a cop that was was interested in seeing it solved right despite the odds and despite people probably say like no why that forget about noonan that had been right. police chief he right. he did keep it up but i thought it was interesting reading the articles that they had in 2001 and 2005 speculating on where gary was when the whole time he hadn't moved anywhere well, he hadn't been going all and over also the world he's hiding using his brother's he was, social security number so you'd think i know that some kind of like if you're like okay the family's helping you know, it like if somebody had a different kind of imagination, maybe that's something that would have come up somewhere. I would never take anyone's family at their word when they say right. they don't know where and someone is. And it's hard is. for two people to use the same social security number. I know. You know, know. so so it's probably not as easy now, right? But maybe back in the late seventies, and then once you're kind of established, how much do they check it? I don't know. Yeah. If you've been working at a place since 1991, yeah, but you need a social security number for things like your bank account to file your taxes. That's true. You know, your your tax ID is your social security number. Bonnie must have filed the taxes as head of household or something. Although the two states are close together, so you could say, oh, I work in both states or some bullshit. You know, I don't know. Yeah, but he, he's filing taxes. His brother's probably filing taxes. You have two people with the same yeah. social security Unless number. Unless one of them isn't. But whatever. anyway. Okay. So you have a recommendation? I do. <laughs> My recommendation today, my NNW rating, is um, for a podcast, which I don't do a lot because, you know, as they say, you don't shit where you eat. But, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, but this is different enough from ours and it's not anybody we know. And, and I just want to revisit, before I get to it, my peeve about reviews because I, I was thinking of that when I went to do a review. Oh, the one point. Yeah, I was thinking of that when I went to do a review of this podcast, and there was one point for things like, oh, this guy is such an annoying voice and stuff like that. And it's oh, like, Jesus. And you listen to all 16 episodes, or there's 17 now, actually. And it also made me think, is kind of a tangent on the peeve, like Amazon and um, Wayfair and stuff, the, the questions and answers. I hate it when, like, you're reading the reviews, and, you know, people can ask questions, and they ask a question where the answer is right there in the product description. Like, how big is this? You <laughs> yeah. know? Can you use this for blah, blah, blah? And there there was one, I was looking at, like, vinyl floor stick-on, like, almost fake tile type things, and somebody, some poor woman asked if you could use them on carpet. And instead of... Oh, um, Jesus. 
instead of somebody just answering, no, they're, you can't use them on soft surfaces, somebody gave this really snarky, why would you use it on carpet? It's carpet, you know, like with all caps and stuff. And then there were two responses to that saying how funny they thought it was. And the more I was looking through these tiles and stuff, the more that bothered me. And I wanted to go back and say to the woman, you obviously... People would rather make fun of you than answer your question. I wouldn't recommend using this on carpet because it's soft and they're not going to stick. And my guess was she had probably a situation like I had in the guest room in my house where there's this old, very low pile carpet that I ended up tearing up. But she was thinking, maybe I can just put something over this carpet. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's a, you know, it's a stupid question. Maybe it isn't. But people deserve to have their questions answered. That's and right. it's not nearly as stupid as a question saying, how big is this when it's fucking right there in the... No shit. But anyway, I digress. Okay. So, so my review is of the podcast Dead Eyes by um, Connor Ratliff. Just like Gary Irving, he had dead eyes. Okay, go on. Sorry. I thought of that. Connor Ratliff. And some of the reviews for it, not that I'm going to get into the reviews, but I think people just don't get his sense of humor. He's a comedian and an actor. And the whole thing is about something that's been kind of haunting him for 20 years. He got a part, a very, very, very small part in Band of Brothers. He was working in... Oh, yeah. I heard uh, about this podcast. Okay, go ahead. Wow. Okay. So he was living and working in England at the time and auditioned for Band of Brothers and got the part. And it was episode five, which was to be directed by Tom Hanks, who is one of the creators band of brothers and a few days before he was to film his part you know he had gone through the whole audition thing and he got a call from his agent's assistant saying he had to re-audition because tom hanks thought he had dead eyes and so (laughs) he he had to go down to the big air place big airfield in in london outside of london where they were filming this and he had to re-audition in front of Tom Hanks. Then he was told he didn't have the part, like, 20 minutes later. It hurt his self-esteem. And he's now, you know, he's recovered from it. But he kind of, he's a stand-up comedian, too. And he's made a lot of hay out of it. And so he decided to kind of investigate the whole thing. And there are people who just think it's this, you know, you read the reviews and stuff. This just really self-involved, idiotic thing. But actually... <sighs> It's ironic. Part of it is just comedy. And part of it is, I think, something a lot of people can identify with, where you are offhandedly told something in your career or your life that the person who told you probably has never thought about again, but mm-hmm. but yep. that has affected you and the way you behave. And so he gets into a lot of that. And it's funny, the people he ends up talking to, he talks to Seth Rogen several times. First of all, he asks a lot of the people he talks to what they think of his eyes. And he also... <laughs> I don't blame him. And he also... I was going to ask you, have you seen him? I've got to look a picture of him yeah, to see if he, he has, has very nice eyes. eyes, nice blue eyes. He ends up interviewing the person who told him that and all sorts of stuff. And I found it very entertaining. And the way I found mm-hmm. out about it is... I was reading an article in the Boston Globe about something totally... I can't even remember what it was. It was. It must have been a column. Because the person who wrote it mentioned him passing this podcast. And they said it, the, it's a riveting podcast. And I thought, oh, I'm looking for something new to listen. And, and it was just like a total one sentence mentioning him passing. And I found it's hard to stop listening to. I think that 
you have to maybe have a certain outlook or sense of humor to enjoy it. But why don't we get into the rating and I'll All right. talk about it more. And I was going to say, it kind of reminds me, before you go on, I just want to say it kind of reminds me of one of the first podcasts that I really listened to was The Mystery Show by Starly oh, yeah. Kine. Remember that one? Yes. I loved that one. She yeah, hasn't wasn't, done any And you made me listen to one of thing where some, somebody yes, saw Britney Spears, the, uh, a photo of Britney Spears yes, carrying her book. And the other one was the one about the lunchbox the with lunch, the Welcome Matt Cotter thing. Right. Oh, and pe- some, pe- some people don't understand that. No. Well, you know, they don't just don't get no. the and they I just don't get I, right. it. So I anyway, think, go on. Yes. And I actually have the things written down here so you don't have to read them for me. Oh, good. Because I don't have them. So bad reenactments. I'm not taking away any points. And even though it's a podcast, there is <laughs> a great reenactment <laughs> where he actually Ooh. gets another guy who was in the scene he was supposed to be in and Seth Rogen <laughs> to read the parts so they can recreate the scene. <laughs> so, and it was done very well. And there's a couple other funny things like that. So there were actual reenactments and I'm not taking them away. Narrative cliches, no, it's mostly him riffing on stuff and he interviews people. The narrative is entertaining and flows well. Racial gender <laughs> obtuseness. I'm taking away a point. <gasps> Ooh, oh. Not for racial, but for gender. Oh, of course. This is the, probably the only issue I've really I had with the podcast. There's an episode where he goes off on this kind of tangent that a part in a movie that he auditioned for and didn't get, but somebody else got a Rebel Wilson movie that came out in 2019, and I can't remember the name of it, but there was a part, Gary the Masturbator, who was just seen at the beginning and end of the movie. She looks out her window and the guy's jerking off. Ew. And then the movie is like one of those, you end up in somebody else's life kind of thing or something, and I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. But then at the very end of the movie, she sees him again, and and she's like kind of glad to see him because it means her life is back or what her miserable life that she hated is back. And that's a simplification. I haven't seen the movie. I can't remember the name and that's not the point. So when he saw the movie, that part was no longer in it. And this episode, it's episode seven, he tries to find out what happened to the part. And he talks to the director of the movie. He talks to all men. And they thought it was funny and they can't figure out Mm. why it was. And the director's like, I can remember when this part was first proposed. It was March of 2017 and blah, blah, blah. And he goes on the story. So I'm thinking, okay, sooner or later it would occur to one of them that this was the dawn of the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. And this movie sounds like a chick flick. And the director mentions at some point just in passing, the test audiences were almost all women. And none of them liked that part. And then they never put two and two together and figure out somebody who was making the movie probably said, you know, we're hearing a lot these days about how women are constantly getting masturbated at by men. And, you know, there was that big Louis C.K. thing that came out around that time that we're hearing a lot in the news that women are being masturbated at. And maybe the people who are going to go see this movie aren't going to think a guy jerking off in his window at someone is as funny as we do. And then they talk to the director's mother because the director mentioned she didn't like it. And so they just call her up and Connor asks if she liked it. But they don't ask, you know, why. It's like, oh, okay, that's it, and hang up. So to me, that's a huge gender 
obtuseness issue. That it's a movie that apparently was ah. made for women, and they don't understand in 2017, and apparently don't understand in 2019 or 20, when this episode was taped, that women are fed up with men jerking off at them and would not Ugh. find that funny in a film. It's not going to be funny now. So anyway, lack of good visuals is a podcast, so that's not an issue. Although I will say I did, I have looked stuff up, including Connor Ratliff's eyes. Missing pieces, I'm also taking away a point, largely for the gender issue I just talked about, but also, and maybe this is true of any industry where you're so used to talking about it, you don't realize that people like us have very little idea of the ins and outs of show business. But for instance, he and um, another woman were talking about UBC, UBC, UBC. And somebody had mentioned the Upright Citizens Brigade, which I know of as an improv group because I've heard of it before. But I went several episodes thinking UBC, UCB rather. UCB was like University of California at Berkeley. And I'm thinking this mm. this isn't this isn't making sense for what they're saying about him doing like weekend shows and then he got elevated to so there's a little inside baseball here and there that needs better explanation for mm -hmm. all those of us who aren't in show business. And there are some other things like that. That's one I can think of. The other missing piece that it comes out a little bit over the course, but I was very, very, very surprised that a part with maybe two or three lines that was just a very minor part would rise to the level of Tom Hanks' interest, even though he was directing the episode, and that the person who got the part would have to audition so much before he even got it, and then have to audition again in front of Tom Hanks, and that Tom Hanks wouldn't want him in the part. And I'm not saying this all didn't happen, because it obviously did, but... Just for somebody who's not in show business, I mean, wow, that seems to me a lot of attention on an incredibly minor part that could have been better explained. Inaccuracies or anachronisms? Nope. Storytelling? Very good. It's not just 16 or now 17 episodes of him going, oh, poor Mia, but he really, <laughs> he really goes into a lot of different things. Like he was listening at the time that happened to a lot of Amy Mann and there was an, an album of hers that had just come out, like a CD that he had to order from America and it came. And then like after this happened to him, it seemed like every song was about, you know, about what had happened to him. And he actually had Amy Mann on an episode and interviewed her and it was really good, and their conversation was really good. And then after that, like, every episode ends with some Amy Mann music. So, <laughs> you know, so there's a lot of different things, like the people he talks to. And I will say one thing, too. I don't know if everybody remembers, but several episodes ago, I was disgusted because a podcast I was listening to, they were about to talk to somebody with what I think was a heavy Scottish accent, right? And they warned listeners, this person has a very colorful accent, blah, blah, blah. Like, it was this bizarre thing. Well, Connor talks to one of the guys who was in Band of Brothers in that scene, who has a heavy Scottish accent, who actually in the scene did an American accent, and he doesn't warn us about it. We just roll with that Scottish accent, and it's all fine. That's just a minor thing. But the storytelling's really good. He manages to bring in a lot of different things, and he also manages, if you have any critical thinking skills, to relay that this is not just him doing some, like, really narcissistic navel-gazing, 
but it's a bigger ex- exploration of, you know, people and how they interact and how they feel and think. Freshness, totally fresh. There are really, it reminded you of that mystery podcast, which it reminded me a little bit of too, but it's not easily categorized and it's just the whole hook Tom Hanks said I had dead eyes so I didn't get a part I think is a great hook if it had been some asshole who had said it it would have been different but Tom Hanks like everybody keeps talking about how nice he is and he's the nicest guy oh I've met him he's so charming he's so nice you know so that's funny and he talks like he talks about things like you know he gets Judd Apatow on it and Seth Rogen because there are ties to all this there's all these degrees of and they talk about freaks and geeks so there's a lot of good freshness repetition there is no bothersome repetition Hmm. I mean we do hear the story of what happened with Tom Hanks many times, but it's always <laughs> told within the context of what's going on, and it's and it's funny. And a, a lot of people who know him and who are his friends, like he'll say to them, "Did I, you know, ever tell you about this thing that happened?" And they're like, "Yes, you've told me many <laughs> times." And so, so, th- so that's good. And beating the drum, I'm not taking away any points. You know, he's obviously beating the drum about this one thing, but that's the whole point. It's not like he's beating the drum mm-hmm. in an annoying way, unless you're one of those people who gives him one star because you don't get what he's doing. The whole thing is kind of making fun of himself, too. So that's eight points. I highly recommend it to anyone who's listened to me talking about it here and thinks it's something they'd enjoy. <laughs> if you, I think I'm going to listen to it. I think you would like it a lot. And if it sounds like something you don't get or if annoying voices annoy you, although I don't know why you would if listen to If they're listening to, to us, us, that's not the case, yeah. And I don't think he has an annoying voice. It's just, it's not this deep melodic voice. More of a high-pitched kind of, it's like a comedian <laughs> voice. But it's funny and, um, oh, and John Hamm is another person he talks to. When he was 17, he was in a play when John Hamm was in college in St. Louis. And this Connor Ratliff's from St. Louis. Huh. And was like a child, like local child actor. They were in a play uh, version of Ordinary People. I think Washington University in St. Louis. So John Hamm is one of the people he talks to in it. And, oh, that's funny. And so it's good. And, it, yeah, I really, I really think it's good. I think people who don't get it don't get it but people who do get it i think they'll enjoy it i know it. there's some there's a certain kind of humor that some people just don't they just right it's more comedy in the bigger sense of irony and yeah, you know exactly. and there's a seriousness to it and it is strangely like I, at first i thought okay you know the person in the boston globe said it was riveting i'll listen to it, it mixing it in with other things but i have found that it's like, okay, I'm loading up all the episodes to listen to. Hmm. So um, definitely oh. recommend it. I'll put it in my queue. Yeah, put it in your queue. Dead Eyes. So okay. th- I think that's probably it for tonight. Yes, right? I believe it is. Yep. Next time it's your turn. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll have to think of something Can't to do. wait. Yeah, me neither. If I were smart, I do keep kind of a list of, of ones that interest me. I do, me. but sometimes then I lose interest before I get yeah, to it. Yeah, I need to. Or like, I find out too many other podcasts have already covered yeah, right. it or But something. yours tonight reminded me of something I had thought about doing a while back and then kind of just didn't. And now I'm going to look into it and see if it's worth doing. 
But I think it's time you have to go put your kid to bed. And I know um, she's been up late. I need to, um, I don't know, find some true crime to watch on TV or something. Yes. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Mm hmm. All our patrons, saints. Yep. Have you bought the Mega Millions and the um? Isn't the is it the Mega Millions that's at seven hundred something million now? I I thought of it, but I haven't. Some, I think they were picking that tonight, though. So mm, maybe oh somebody well. already won. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. another dream dies. Know. I'm always behind the loop. Okay. Well, okay. thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening. Bye bye. Now I'm not one to cast aspersions, but since called our own brother billy a tom milliken in a recent no, that article wasn't that was that was oh okay never mind then you know where he was masturbating yes. and, and harvey wines the plant your whole comment just disappeared did you want to say that again harvey wines with plant it's twanged again I'm very late so i this is good sound with the Okay, I'm, I'm just going to keep talking, okay? To it. I'm just going to talk. Oh, you're gone.